Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Joshua Skako, the author of The Ubiquitous Presidency Presidential Communication and Digital Democracy in Tumultuous Times. This is his first book. He's the Associate Chair of the Department of Communication at the University of South Florida. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Skako. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you today, Evan. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. The president threw out the first pitch. The president played saxophone on a talk show. The president tweeted, the president surprised a diner full of people. The president gave a State of the Union. The president wrote an op-ed. The president did interviews with local news stations. The president gave boxing commentary. The president announced a new policy in the Rose Garden. The president invited Beyonce. The president talked to Jimmy Fallon. The president, the president, the president. Hardly a day goes by where a conversation can't start. Did you see what the president did? Joshua, was it always like this? Was it always impossible to live without him? No. So one of the, <laughs> <laughs> one of the, that's one of the inspirations for this book, Evan. And it really was my co-author, uh, Kevin Coe, who is- Yes, we should Africa. mention there's a co-author, Kevin Coe. Yeah. Congratulations um, to him. I guess you're the spokesman for the group. Here. Um, he and I, when we first started- talking about the ideas that would become this book in really fall of 2014. One of the things that we were really interested in uh, were the seemingly big changes that Barack Obama was bringing to presidential communication. And a lot of that was precipitated by digital media, by social media. And what we started doing when we dug further is we found that these common strategies and tactics go back quite a bit further. Uh, however, really, if we're going to talk about a break and how presidents start to convey themselves in different ways, we have to start the story with Bill Clinton. And so if we think really for the past 30 years, this sort of omnipresent presidency, this ubiquity, uh, has come to the fore as a deliberate tactic that presidents engage in to keep themselves visible, to, keep, to attempt to control a message in an increasingly complicated media environment, as well as to adapt to big changes that are occurring with communication technology at the time. And that's one of the things that I think is most fun about this book. Because, and it is a fun book, but it's also a scholarly work, um, mm -hmm. and there are interesting terms that we have to define before we go any further. So um, let's define some of the terms that you're using here. Um, one of the things you say is that ubiquity is not the same as overexposure. Uh, define right. them and then explain what the difference between them is. Sure. So ubiquity is, in many ways, the president's drive to meet fairly constant goals of presidential communication. So these goals go back to really the first moments when presidents entered the national media stage uh, in the early 1900s. 
And so these goals since then have been about, uh, they've been about visibility, being visible to the American public uh, and later to the world, being adaptable to new technology and also attempting co to control messages. And if anyone out there wants to place a moment in their minds from kind of the classic conception of what we would think about, this would be FDR's fireside chats. This would be uh, John F. Kennedy really making a break on television, Ronald Reagan as well on television, but also in terms of a weekly radio address and those particular types of moments. So these goals have been in place. What has happened is the world has changed around the president. Technology has changed people have changed, the ways in which presidential effectiveness in terms of trying to generate policy outcomes and exhort the public to do particular things, that has changed too. And so what that means is this is where ubiquity comes in, that presidents have to have a nearly constant and highly visible presence. And so that essentially means that they're going to saturate every crevice of messaging space available, whether it is on the news, whether it is in non-political venues like Barack Obama courtside at a Georgetown Duke basketball game, or as you had mentioned, the former president uh, the other night, uh, MCA, the boxing. boxing, right? Um, these are increasingly common spaces where presidents are uh, trying to get their voice out there. And the main reason is you have audiences that once tuned in in the tens of millions to American presidents to listen to them speak that are now watching The Bachelor, that are now watching House Hunters. And so presidents have to go into those spaces too to get a message out. And how is that different from overexposure? Overexposure is in many ways the repetition of um, messages in one space. So if we think about the classic notion of a president or a political leader uh, essentially doing media hits over and over and over again with like maybe a small set of outlets, like a national cable outlet like CNN or Fox News or those types of things. Uh, presidents can be overexposed in this particular environment, but ubiquity is different because ubiquity is about going to spaces where people might not see the message on CNN and Fox News. So to, you know, to the reporters and journalists and uh, academics and scholars and researchers and the people and the politicos of the world who follow this, like you and I do, Evan, uh, it may seem very much like the president is overexposed. But to the person who is not really interested in politics, who might encounter the president coincidentally, uh, you know, ringside at a boxing match or, 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 you know, uh, doing commentary at a basketball game, that's not exposure. That's not overexposure. That's just mere exposure at that particular point. So I think that that's critically important that to most people who are going to be encountering the president, they would not otherwise have encountered him unless he goes into some of these alternative spaces. So overexposure means you've already done 50 hits on one place and the same people have seen you over and over again. Ubiquity is lots of people are seeing you um, many different times. Right. And I think that's the key component here because when you have individuals that can choose 
the news that they want based on their own political predispositions, based on their own political beliefs. What that ultimately means is they can get as much of the the home the home team message, you know, as they want. Uh, but ubiquity is an attempt for presidents to go beyond that. It's an attempt to reach people where they are. Some of the other terms that you use in the book, and this is sort of the core of your main argument, um, but but the terms are accessibility, personalization, and pluralism are the mm-hmm. key elements of today's presidential communication. Can you just go through the examples of all three of those words and give us some real life examples um, of whichever president, pick one, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, yeah. um, as it relates to each one of those terms, just so we can get a real feel for um, the concepts we should be looking for in our daily lives. Sure. Uh, so accessibility is the first big component. And essentially what this means is, as I noted, presidents are going to go where their audiences are. This is a basic understanding of public communication, that you go where your audiences are, you speak to your audiences, um, where, they, where they come to meet you. And so one of the key moments that inspires us, we talk about this in the book, is sometime around uh, 2015, uh, Barack Obama does a, uh, does a video for BuzzFeed. And this is, he's holding a selfie stick uh, and he's taking selfies of himself as he's being recorded. He's also doing things like, you know, sitting on his desk, drawing a picture of Michelle Obama. And um, this is in a lot of ways dismissed initially by many individuals as unpresidential. That's one of the underlying messages that we see in the book is that these moments get labeled as unpresidential. So he's doing all of these particular things. And if you just focus on him like dunking chocolate chip cookies in milk or, you know, posing for the camera, you can miss, you can also miss the fact that the underlying message that he's trying to get across is encouraging individuals between 18 and 30 years old to sign up for the Affordable Care Act, to sign up for health care exchanges. So accessibility here is he's going where his audience was, which was younger people. He needed to get younger people to sign up for healthcare because the, 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 the health pools, the insurance pools rely on younger people. Um, and he was using it as a means to reach people where they were. In a way, if we think about it as well, bringing in the personalization aspects of it. Uh, you know, if you think about the ways in which uh, presidents do reveal their personality. So Barack Obama in this setting is trying to do things as if he's behind the scenes. Uh, the titling of the of the BuzzFeed video is things we all do but don't tell people about, mm. right? Okay. And that's like the classic behind the scenes, you know, pulling away the curtain. And that's what personalization is. It's an attempt to pull away the curtain on seemingly powerful political figures. We might look at Donald Trump and his Twitter rants as an instance of him revealing parts of his personality too, revealing emotion, the emotionality of his communication. Those are things as well that presidents have not traditionally done. So we see that personalization there as well. When we finally get to this aspect of pluralism, this third component of ubiquity, what we, what we talk about and what we relate it to is when you have audiences that are scattering to many, many different venues and platforms and places where they can get information, good and bad information, ultimately what that means is it actually becomes easier to target your audience as opposed to a broadcast where you could have a 
variety of different publics and audiences tuning into one broadcast. And, and, you know, Evan, you do this on a regular basis in terms of the ways in which you have to communicate to that audience are very different than when you're communicating to a targeted audience. Because of that, what that means is presidents have to talk to the smaller and smaller groups that are tuning into these very niche venues. And so that's what we see over time as well with the changes in media technologies, with the growing diversification of, of American society and complexity of international affairs, presidents are meeting that challenge in how they talk to it. Now, we use it as a way of saying, this doesn't always mean that presidents will frame pluralism positively. Um, and we do document that in the book, and we use Donald Trump as an example of someone who responded to these trends, but someone who didn't necessarily frame them as a net positive. It's really easy to blame the ubiquitous presidency on Donald Trump because, let's just face it, he was really, really good at driving the media narrative. He mostly Excellent. used Twitter, but he, he certainly... You know, um, if you can call it a press conference, he would answer questions walking by just about every camera that he was near. And he had a really, um, uh, a really precise way of figuring out when it was a good time to keep things moving in the direction either away from what he wanted to or towards a new direction of what he did want to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things you say is that this is not one moment though it is too easy to look even at the last two presidents donald trump and barack obama um before joe biden and and say that this was their creation um you say it's not one moment though this is an evolution in campaigning and governing practices um and also a change in the electorate so let's go to the videotape as it were let's go to you know the when you think this really started to take on and you uh, take on speed and you said bill clinton is a good example of it uh, i think of the saxophone uh, yeah but, but, arsenio and, but hall. Go ahead. yeah yeah yeah. Uh, yeah absolutely arsenio uh arsenio hall great example of this particular moment if you want to go back further you can go back to 1968 richard nixon appears on laughin um, and does a really awkward socket to me, uh, you know, kind of presentation. But I think the key component is Bill Clinton, when he's campaigning for president, goes into many of these alternative spaces, many of these, what we would consider more like tabloid news, soft news spaces, as well as pure entertainment spaces. So Larry King Live you know, good example of those particular things, uh, Arsenio Hall being another example. And he tries this in some ways when he becomes president. So I think the classic example that we talk about in the book is 1994, he is pushing for the crime bill. Um, and this is in response to, this is both uh, gun control legislation as well as crime related legislation. We might actually remember this from the 2020 campaign because this actually became an important issue for Joe Biden uh, many, many years ago when Joe Biden supported this legislation. So Bill Clinton is pushing for this legislation in 1994 and he wants to do a town hall. And we all think of the town halls as like the presidential debates, very formal, one of the major uh, net, uh, broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, or something gets them and people are standing around. Bill Clinton wants to do one of these. And 
so the classic decision for a president would be, okay, let's go on ABC and do this. Bill Clinton goes on MTV. He gets asked uh, a very famous question during he, the, <laughs> during this appearance. He does. Um, <laughs> he wants to talk about the crime bill. Right. And he's talking to a group of 18 somethings, 18, 19 year olds. One of the questions he gets is, Mr. <laughs> Mr. President, uh, do you prefer boxers or briefs? And just a really, uh, a great moment in illustrating personalization, in illustrating a president attempting to be accessible, going into a different format. Um, the audience is, the audience of, of teenagers here is a diverse audience. One of the things that MTV was really trying to emphasize with Rock the Vote, those particular types of things, and he gets asked this question. And the lesson that Bill Clinton learns is you go into some of these other spaces, you better be ready for the types of personalized questions that you might not want to answer. He doesn't do that much more during his presidency, but it's the sort of dipping your toes in the water that it opens the doors for these particular things. And after that, there is there are increased opportunities for presidents to do similar activities like this. I, I, I am, um, I am forbidding you to answer that question. <laughs> answer the question that he was asked. I don't want to. I don't want to know at all what his answer was. But it is interesting that that um, maybe he got a little bit um, skeevish. You say he didn't do these kinds of appearances again. Maybe he understood that there are parts of his personal life that he didn't really want to be broadcast out in the open. Maybe this was kind of a signal uh, of that uh, in his TMI presidency. Right, exactly. Maybe it was a harbinger of like things to come, you know, in terms of what was going to happen. Um, but also it's a really fascinating moment because he still tries to maintain accessibility just in different ways. And so he does, so he does things like he'll go on talk radio and that was actually one of the most interesting parts of the analysis was looking at how Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, before their social media, attempt to be accessible by going on things like morning talk radio or sports talk uh, and, and, talking, and, and talking about these things as well. Even Donald Trump, you know, we oftentimes overlook things like talk radio, but talk radio has a huge audience in the United States, huge audience, sports talk, huge audiences. Donald Trump will go on sports talk, uh, radio stations in Indiana and other places as well. Um, and you saw this and you saw this quite a bit in terms of these in terms of Clinton, Bush, Obama and Trump just going into these particular places that are kind of under the radar, but also reaching targeted audiences. How did the fracturing of media channels influence the ubiquitous presidency? George W. Bush, one of the examples you give in your book, George W. Bush builds the case for war without using broadcast TV. He understands that I don't have to go on one of the big three to yeah. stand there in my suit and tie, as you put it, and deliver a case that the American public will be unable to avoid. He realizes he can go beyond the big three, CBS, ABC, NBC, and go onto cable TV to build his case for war. Yeah. So George W. Bush, in a lot of ways, exemplifies this other approach that presidents use, which is they go to, they, they go local. 
essentially. And some political scientists have looked at this idea of the ways in which presidents forego a national platform and travel to small towns. They travel to targeted congressional districts. They give speeches. And what they do is they exert maximal pressure through their public appearances and these swing congressional districts on members of Congress uh, through the coverage. And you can think about this as, you know, national, national journalists, they have particular agendas. They're oftentimes criticized for being very DC centric. Uh, they're oftentimes criticized for being overly negative towards the president. Uh, in general, when presidents go for, to localities, uh, talk with local journalists, they're generally going to get more favorable coverage. And if you think about the ways in which local news trumpets presidential visits, they cut into local coverage, they have people, they have their journalists uh, on scene, those particular types of things. A president can gain a lot of very important attention at the local level by doing this. And this Air Force one, one makes a lot of noise when it lands. Yeah. At- Tampa International or at Lakeland Linder, which is a very, very small airport. I saw Donald Trump land in what they called Trump Force One before he was president there at Lakeland Linder. Um, And that's a small, tiny little airport. And there were tens of thousands of people there and the appearance got huge coverage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so these are, this is really where, this is like the whistle stop tour of like the 20th century where presidents would be on the the platform, the caboose of the train. They'd stop in a town, they'd give a speech for five or 10 minutes, they'd go on to the next town. This is very similar to that. Media coverage, lots of, me- lots of local media coverage. In general, it's more favorable. And the president can build, with George W. Bush in this case, was able to build a case um, for war, uh, build a case after September 11th, that went around in a lot of ways, national media. Um, And so that's one of the other, I think really, again, has come full circle really in the past couple of months in terms of the end of the Afghan war, um, in terms of thinking about how these, these practices that happened 20 years ago, how they come back. As a quick aside, how did you do the research for this book? Um, Was this a presidential archives? Um, research project? Did you go through newspaper clippings? Did you search social media? What were the sort of ingredients that you and Kevin used for this book? There were a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This was over a period of five, six years, we did, uh, we uh, ran and were part of national uh, surveys. Um, of voter attitudes, of citizen attitudes. Uh, We ran experimental work testing messages, looking at ways in which people would respond to the president in a variety of circumstances and venues, uh, work that we're continuing to do. We looked at news clippings, uh, thousands and thousands of news clippings at the national, local level. We also looked at millions of tweets, uh, analyzed those as well uh, over over a period of really since Barack Obama first innovated on Twitter in 2009. So we went back over a decade on Twitter uh, with that data. And so we pull from a variety of sources. We pull from popular accounts. We pull from kind of observational accounts as well uh, in the press. 
So lots of data sources come together here to triangulate the findings that we have related to the nature of media coverage of how it's changed over time, the nature of how presidential communication has changed. So speeches, traditional mode speeches, those types of things, we definitely look at those. And then the ways in which public attitudes are also evolving, we also track that alongside all of this other data. Before I get to Barack Obama and social media, I want to ask this question too, but maybe Barack Obama is part of the answer to this. So feel free to dive in to Obama and social media here. But I want to ask, do all the tools at the president's disposal help us know them as a real human being, or are we getting a caricature that is merely designed to fit their efforts to be ubiquitous? Evan, that's a tough question. <laughs> this is this is the ultimate authenticity question. This is, and the search for authenticity oftentimes interacts with some of these very important ideas. So there are two ways to think about this. The first is that we talk about in the book that even when the president has attempted to give us the backstage of what they look like behind the scenes, and then they put that out for public consumption, that is still in its own way staged, right? right? That's the backstage they want you to see. Exactly, exactly. So that is one particular aspect of this. And that's really where we lean quite a bit in the book is this notion that, oh, they're giving us their unvarnished, you know, perception, you know, stuff behind the scenes. And it's like, no, this is what the White House has decided that they want to strategically say about what is going on behind the scenes. The other side of that, though, is we've all been in a situation where a communicator has used a piece of media technology or has, or has tried to convey a portion of themselves and, and has come off as completely disingenuous. And the reason for that is that authenticity component doesn't back it up. So this is something as well that's really important, which is these changes that we talk about in the book are institutional. However, the presidential personality, how the president is comfortable, matters quite a bit too. And so that's where presidents will lean into these particular approaches, but in their own way and in their own style. So the example that we think of for Joe Biden is Joe Biden is not going to become emotional on Twitter like Donald Trump was. That's not Joe Biden. What Joe Biden is going to do is, as he's already done, He's going to talk about the personal tragedies in his life um, and how they've shaped him in, ter in terms of his policies and approach. Um, also, uh, when he goes on these visits to places, one of the things that he purposely gets filmed doing is eating ice cream. And, or if we think about the stories early on in his presidency about the dog, about the issues with the dogs, these are revealing in some ways, right? The ways in which the White House responds to that story, they don't have to respond to the story about the dog nipping, you know, people, um, but they do. Um, because that illustrates something about, in a lot of ways, what Joe Biden's prioritizing in his White House, uh, aspects of personality and things. And that is, that is very much kind of the new normal of where we're going. It's, it's these sorts of carefully crafted moments, but also ones that the White House now tries to also align with the president's personality so that it seems the most genuine. Maybe the best interview that I saw with 
Barack Obama during his eight years as president um, mm-hmm. is with Jerry Seinfeld. And of course, mm-hmm. comedians have an incredible way of pulling out the real information about people, right? They're the real geniuses Absolutely. in society. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and Jerry Seinfeld is sitting there with Barack Obama, I think in a White House kitchen or something. So you'd never really <laughs> even seen that. You know, you'd never seen that before. It was for his comedians in cars getting coffee thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, we don't, we never saw this side of Barack Obama until Jerry Seinfeld brought it out. But Jerry says to him, do you ever curse that, you know, in the Oval Office? And Obama yeah. goes, oh yeah, absolutely. And he says, so you'll say rat bastard or something. He goes, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> and, and, and it was just such a revealing moment, but it also shows that, 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 um, that there is a way to get them to show their real selves. You just have to get them, or it has to be the right person doing the interview. Or even though this was a, a sort of scripted thing, maybe Obama kind of knew what to expect. It was a, that type of direct question that suddenly got to the essence of, yeah, Barack Obama does curse in mm-hmm. private. Well, and you know, my my co-author on this book and colleague and friend, uh, Kevin Coe, he's actually done some of his own work separate from this on actually uh, presidential swears as well, inspired quite a bit by uh, Donald Trump. But it is this question of in what ways does it violate the sort of decorous expectation that we have of the president, even though we all know that the president swears behind the scenes, there's also this public decorum aspect of the expectation of the presidency. Part of the reason why Donald Trump got so much news coverage is he would he would look at a norm of the presidency and say okay i'm going to do the exact opposite because i know it will get coverage um and you know another interview that i think of similarly in this vein is uh interview that barack obama gives post-presidency it's uh with david letterman and for david Mm -hmm. letterman's show on netflix it's actually letterman very worth very good yeah yeah, it's Letterman's first interview uh, for this series is with Barack Obama. And I think that says something about the ways in which both of them relied on each other for particular audiences and things. Because Barack Obama goes on late night, uh, criticized heavily for it. And it's interesting because Letterman asks him, you know, why'd you do all this? Like, what were what were some of the big motives behind you pushing for these particular things and the ways that you did them. And Barack Obama says something really revealing. He says that, you know, politics obviously and policy oftentimes is slow, it's messy. You don't have a Congress that agrees with you. You can't get a lot of things. And the key part of his message, he says, but presidents can influence culture and they can influence essentially what he's saying is the sphere beyond traditional politics. And that's precisely what encapsulates this notion of ubiquity. Is, the, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, and it's, it's exactly that philosophy that presidents attempt to do. And that's what you see as well. For as much as Donald Trump was a political force, his policy accomplishments um, in terms of what he got through Congress actually are not necessarily, you know, as robust as other presidents. Where where Donald Trump made his mark was culture. 
And that was before he became president and as president too. And remember when Barack Obama first started tweeting, he took a lot of heat from his political mm -hmm. opponents that he spends way too much time on Twitter. And before yeah. we knew it, there was somebody who was spending probably five times as much time on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. And so you talk about influencing culture. Um, it was almost like the president realized, hey, I can just text all these people at once, <laughs> you know, send out a mass text. And we're all looking at it the same way our, our, our friend would send us a text message. It's, and, it, and it's, it's a great way to control the message. Another important goal of presidential communication. And also, you know, from, from journalist accounts of how Donald Trump thought about this too, Donald Trump would essentially tell people, all I need to do is pick up my phone, tweet something, and it's instant breaking news, right? And so Donald Trump understood the attentional aspects of the ways in which he could get a message out too. And you see this in the Biden White House. So uh, the Biden White House leans into Twitter, leans into social media in very different ways uh, than Donald Trump did. It's, it's more of a kind of classic go back to what Barack Obama did. Um, but they're finding their footing in terms of the ways in which they characterize ubiquity in their own ways as well. And I brought up the examples of the dogs and ice cream, but, um, you know, really, I think one of the big, one of the big ways that Joe Biden leans into this is the ways in which he talks about his family and the ways in which family is his family and what he's been through helps inspire the ways he looks at policy. Maybe my, one of my favorite episodes that we've done and one of my favorite biographies of Donald Trump is a book by James Poniewozik. We had him on the show. If you mm -hmm. want to download that, it's, a, it's maybe, eh, maybe, in our, eh, maybe in our teens or 20 episodes. Um, but James Poniewozik says that Donald Trump figured out that he could be the one lucky boy in all of history who gets to determine what is on the television set, who gets to speak to the people on TV and then sit there and watch them talk right back to him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, I think about the graph that you had, uh, that you have in your book that shows how many mentions he got on CNN. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it, it was like, you know, it was like a bar graph and it was like, you know, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but the, <laughs> but his bars were like, you know, 10 times as high as anybody else's. And we're talking about they the were. presidency here. And so I guess I would ask, is Donald Trump an aberration? Or is this the new rule that in order to be a functional president in today's society, that you have to put that many inputs into our discourse and watch the TV and all the other outlets spit them back out of you? So... You can look at a strategist, a, a political strategist would tell you that politics is warfare. And essentially the way that, uh, the way that you win, one of the ways that you win is to be able to frame reality quicker than your opponents can frame reality. Now people out there might be thinking, well, wait, isn't there just like the reality that I see out there? It's like, sure. But also as we all live through a pandemic, we see that there are, there are people out there trying to compete over narratives of what this pandemic looks like in terms of vaccinations, deaths, cases, what those things mean. So the first person to frame reality in a lot of ways then creates fertile ground by which they can push policy and those types of things. In a media environment where we're at, 
where the president is constantly in a really a war with so many other people trying to publish, so many people uh, trying to get their message out there, it the president has to have a lot of inputs in the system in a lot of different places. We we kind of call them. Um, I'm originally I'm originally from Pennsylvania, but spent quite a bit of time in the Northeast as a kid on the beach, those types of things. And so I think of like moorings in the ocean um, and you need these sorts of moorings for, you know, these messages. And that's, and that's, and that's, I think what's going on here. Uh, so that's the strategist side uh, from really the, you know, the researcher, the researcher side um, who, you know, I hate these types of strategies and I hate these types of like strategic and warfare related ways that we talk about these things. Um, this is in a lot of ways important for the president uh, for relevance. And that might sound weird to people listening. It's like, well, the president can never be relevant, can never be irrelevant, right? And it's like, well, it, if the president isn't visible, other people are going to step into that vacuum of a space. And that's partly the balance that Joe Biden has kind of had to take post-Trump, which is, Evan, as you said, those mentions in news were so high for Donald Trump that even a return, a pre-return to the levels of Barack Obama or even George W. Bush in terms of presence, which is still quite a bit, even a return like that will make it seem like the president is less visible. So Joe Biden has had to fight against that, that sort of notion that he's hiding when he's actually giving quite a bit of inputs and quite a bit of content out there. Uh, and so that's going to be a challenge for presidents going forward. But the baseline, the baseline has shifted and the baseline has shifted towards more inputs the president has to put into the system. What is the challenge for the American public, for the electorate, for the people who care about the direction of the country? If, if the president is the one setting the baseline for essentially all discourse, mm -hmm. How can we still hold the president accountable for what they do? Final chapter of the book. And we, we grappled with this for some time. The final chapter is written prior to the 2020 election, prior to the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol. And so we focus quite a bit on the ways in which multiple agents in a democracy, whether that's people, whether that's journalists, whether that's courts or platforms, so tech platforms as well can hold the president accountable. For people, one of the things that we argue for, for citizens is the first kind of, the first people at like the pinnacle of thinking about attention to the president will be the most politically engaged people. They're going to be the people, the partisans on the left, on the right, in the middle, um, the ones that do follow quite a bit of the president. And one of the things we argue is politically attentive individuals um, need to think about their attention span as if it is a market product and allocate their attention as a consumer away from the president towards other political sources. And we bring up the examples of local government, local news, uh, local sources 
for this attention, local school board, local school board, those types of things. And the reason, the reason we go in this direction of thinking about kind of market forces is many of these attentional dynamics that the president that the president flirts with as part of the ubiquitous presidency, you see in terms of some news outlets lean into like clickbait, uh, the ways in which they have teasers to bring people in and those types of things. You see this with product ads and, that, and those types of things. And so when people begin to think about their attention as a finite product that can be allocated strategically, then they can allocate it to sources that actually need it, like local news, like local government, that need the attention of some of these people who are devoting quite a bit of their attention resources to the president. So we actually call for people to listen less to the president, which is tough at the end of a book that when we write about uh, Which presidents in history would have loved being ubiquitous who didn't get the chance to because of when they were president? Roosevelt. Yeah, Franklin, T Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt. What about TR? Him too, probably, right? Yeah, t uh, Teddy, uh, Teddy Roosevelt too. You know, it's interesting because Teddy Roosevelt is one of the first political leaders that really inaugurates kind of the traditional rhetorical presidency he starts to really venture forward, giving public speeches, really trying to give these sorts of like stem winder addresses and those types of things. I mean, during one of his presidential campaigns, you know, he shot, you know, and continues giving his speech. Right. Uh, you, you know, assassination attempts. So it illustrates like the power of what he thought, you know, public speaking is. Um, so Teddy Roosevelt, definitely. Franklin Roosevelt was ubiquitous before it was a thing. Uh, especially in his use of radio. So I would argue those two, probably Ronald Reagan. Uh, he threw out some first pitches. There's a great video of him throwing out the first pitch at the Chicago Cubs stadium. Absolutely. And, you know, his staff understood the power of the visual leaning into stagecraft, you know, at the Berlin Wall. Uh, the other key thing is we oftentimes think about, you know, Franklin Roosevelt starts to give fireside chats and then these sorts of radio addresses become a normal thing. But in fact, this sort of like radio address idea really doesn't become a thing until the Carter Reagan era, particularly Ronald Reagan on Saturday mornings doing these sorts of weekly radio addresses where he's just like talking like we are, you know, uh, into, into a microphone. Um. I have a few guesses for the next one, a few opinions for the next one, but which presidents through history would have hated being ubiquitous? I don't have time for this. I don't have time. Who would that be? I have a um, couple, but go ahead. Uh, I, I definitely want to hear your list. So the first one that comes to mind uh, for us, because we talk about him in the book, actually, as someone who's watching the ground shift under his feet, and he's like, I'm not doing any of this, was George H.W. Bush. Yeah, that, that would be one. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, uh, and CIA then, man, he was a, a serious, you know, a, a very serious vice president. Yeah, I don't have time for this. Yeah. And the best example, honestly, is, you know, in the 92 campaign, he's the incumbent president. He's facing off against, you know, this governor from Arkansas in his 40s. And the governor from a governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, is going on Arsenio, is going on Larry King, is going into all of these settings. And George H.W. Bush is like, I'm not going to do it. And his staff is like, why not? You're getting clobbered. You need to go into these spaces. You need to talk to these people. And he, and he essentially says, it's unpresidential. I'm not going to do it. Mm. Um, so George H.W. Bush saw it as beneath the office to do those things. 
So yeah, he rejected it. Uh, he rejected this move. And ultimately, you know, that's not necessarily a huge factor in his defeat. But what it did, does illustrate is that the ground and the currents were shifting away from that type of style. All right, I'm going definitely Woodrow Wilson. Okay. If he was even well enough to, you know, yeah. to do it. Uh, Harry Truman. I got. <laughs> I don't have enough time for this. And then the the easiest one to me is Silent Cal, Calvin Coolidge. Come on. Yep, absolutely. Come on. Uh, and it's interesting because... Uh, yeah, the quotes the quotes Calvin Coolidge made every time he had to like give a speech, and he was just like, "I hate giving speeches. Like I hate doing this." <laughs> he won't um, even give the speech, let alone go on Arsenio. I mean, yeah, for real, absolutely. <laughs> he didn't even want to talk to people. Um, but I also think it's really important. I uh, I like that you bring up Woodrow Wilson because Woodrow Wilson leans into this sort of public presidential communication. He mm. sees it as critical. so. Maybe I'm wrong then. No, no, no. I don't think you are though, because when he goes on. Uh, his famous train tour to sell the League of Nations uh, out west puts in tens of thousands of miles. Ultimately, what happens is he has a stroke, right? And that actually sends a message to some people. It's like, well, maybe the president shouldn't be doing these types of public activities because maybe it's too strenuous for the president to be making these speeches and doing all this travel and those types of things. So no, actually, I think that you're dead on with that because Woodrow Wilson loved the traditional speech. He loved the crowd. He loved that sort of very formalized address and probably would not have leaned into the sorts of style of communication that many modern presidents have. Maybe Truman realized that he, he, he could be ubiquitous during the campaign, but would rather focus on work during, uh, yeah. during governing. Um, how about Eisenhower? That seems like somebody who wouldn't want to spend a whole lot of time talking to Arsenio Hall about boxer shorts and whatever else. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a war general. And the other, the other important thing that is really difficult for these types of comparisons is these presidents live in our minds in kind of the era where they were, right? And so it's tough to say, put Eisenhower in a media environment like the one we have now, because if you do that, I don't even know if we get a President Eisenhower at that point, right? And so that I think is interesting um in and of itself but yeah i mean eisenhower also you know he hated press conferences he basically in one of his press conferences he equates it to being crucified like he so uh <laughs> so he brings in the biblical imagery there um so yeah i don't think he would have taken too much to these approaches quite harsh biblical imagery um yes. so one of the great things about josh well there are many great things about josh but one of the great things is that josh is here in tampa this is our first tampa-based guest that's where i'm based and it's nice to have josh uh here from his uh job up, up at uh, university of south florida which is eh, maybe a dozen miles or so from where i'm sitting right now in south uh in south tampa so uh, tell us uh, first of all what are you teaching your students at USF um, and what kinds of courses are you teaching and um, how are you using this book and helping them with it? Yep, so it, my undergraduate courses focus on political communication and they focus um, on persuasion and media. So this semester, particularly in my persuasion and media course, one of the things we talk about quite a bit is how some of these tactics that presidents are using in digital spaces are used by product advertisers are used by journalists are used by organizations and also political leaders too we talk about 
propaganda, what that means, differentiating propaganda from persuasion, very important in an environment like we're in now, where there's so much information being put out by so many people. And the number one question I get from my students is, where do you go for information? Uh, and that is clearly every semester, that's like the number one question I get from students because they're much more, they're much more savvy than even I myself give them credit for sometimes in terms of being able to look for information, but they're always curious about where I'm going for information. And so teaching them a lot of this is about media literacy. It's about how do you dig through so much of the information that's out there and how do you make sure that the information that you're seeing is actually factual uh, versus sort of like propagandistic appeals that are, you know, secretly helping someone or a group of people and they might not even realize it. So a lot of it's digging through those particular layers of information and things. I am not one to give homework assignments to college professors, but I do want to ask and feel free to just wave me away. Uh, is there going to be a second book and what do you think it might be? Uh, there is going to be a second book. <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm actually currently working on it. Uh, you don't have to say, you don't have to yeah, say. No, 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 no. It's fine. No, uh, it's actually uh, going to be looking at similar types of trends and topics and things, but thinking about another portion of my research that's kind of related to this, but I focus quite a bit on news, uh, especially the changing kind of marketplace and messaging around news. And so the book is actually going to be thinking about the attention economy for news. Uh, looking specifically at clickbait. So I'm so I term it in my head and my colleague that I'm working with on this uh, at the University of Kansas, um, I haven't necessarily told her this, but the way I think about it is like the ubiquity of news, um, but I'm not going to be using that term. But it is in a lot of ways thinking about ways in which news outlets increasingly try to gain attention for their products, uh, increasingly try to break through the noise of what's out there. Uh, and through these trends of thinking about, you know, emotionality, uh, other forms of clickbait uncertainty, those particular types of things and in, in, in the news product. So that will be the next book. Dr. Joshua Skako, the author of The Ubiquitous Presidency, Presidential Communication and Digital Democracy in Tumultuous Times. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Evan. Appreciate your time today. Certainly check out that book and also his Twitter feed, which is at Josh Skako. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.